I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. Coming up on this longest day of the year, we go with naturalists at dawn. House wren, yellow warbler singing behind me. It's just alive with birds here this morning. Here goes the hummer. And we talk with a scientist who suspects a hobbit-like human might still live on remote islands in Indonesia. Although there is also the notion that the the ape men uh, do steal from uh, cornfields and and even the odd chicken. We begin with a pre-dawn hike in honor of today's summer solstice, the longest day of the year. For more, here's Shelley. If you want to celebrate nature during this week of the summer solstice, think about heading out on a trail before dawn. That's when the birds are singing. That's when the light is especially beautiful. That means this week. Find a trail around 5 a.m. Boulder naturalist Steve Jones, Scott Severs, and Ruth Carol Cushman did that recently as part of going up to the National Center for Atmospheric Research wildfire site. Here's Ruth Carol Cushman heading up the trail toward Ankar just before dawn. We're walking up Bear Creek Canyon facing the flat irons, which are just bathed in the just-before-sunrise light, very pink, and uh, we're looking up at the fire burn from the Inkar fire that occurred a little bit earlier. And it's very abrupt, the line between the paler green that's unburned and the really deep green from where the burn is. As Ruth Carol Cushman looks off in the distance toward the burn area of the Inkar fire, Steve Jones and Scott Seavers notice some amazing neotropical birds in the pre-dawn light of this very shrubby, Foothills Trail. Oh, that's a western tanager up there. Yellow and red birds, very bright yellow and red. They have a very tropical appearance. Here comes the chat. Bright yellow breast. You can see the black mask. And then there's a black-headed grosbeak singing to the left. This is just amazing. Lashley budding. That's the song right there. It's in front of us on the right. They're really beautiful turquoise blue head and back. It's got maybe the four most beautiful birds in Boulder County all right here in this thicket. There's the black-headed grosbeak now in that very fine shrub. You know, they call these neotropical migrants. They winter in the tropics of uh, the Western Hemisphere. They have those bright colors that we associate with rainforest. One pair of birds are noisy yellow chats. Years ago, we would have said that what we're seeing is two territorial males battling because they're both singing. But now we know that 50% of songbird females sing too. So I think it's a pair, and I think one of them's a female. Oh, and Steve's purring at something. It was a catbird. You can see it. It's perched right out in the open on this shrub. It's gray, dark gray all over with a black head and a black tail, and it's singing that weird composite song, which is sounds it hears and then it tries to reproduce them. And it just went down into the choke cherries. It sounds like it's swallowing its song. And it's a mimic thrush. It learns to sing by imitating other uh, bird songs. Here's a broad-tailed hummingbird really close, right over Ruth Carroll. 
And there's another bird up there, some sort of a sparrow. Can you tell what that is? Oops, just flew. It's a JF bird, it just flew. After watching for the just flew bird, naturalist Steve Jones turns his attention back to the Ankara burn site, including what it was like this spring. My wife and I were evacuated during this fire at the end of March, but I sat on our front lawn and watched the fire for quite a while because we had had a very, very wet winter this year. 77 inches of snow from the 1st of January to the middle of March, so the grasses were not that dry. And as you look up at this fire burn area, you can see about half the ponderosas up here got really burned. The unburned ones are still very dark green. The burned ones are just pure brown. Some of these will recover. A lot of them won't. And the effect of this is going to be to thin out this forest. It's actually a woodland up here. It's not a dense forest. But the thinner it gets, the healthier it is in terms of the way it was historically. So these burns are really good for the ponderosa pine forest. Now there's one area up there that's just black and in that area all the ponderosa is going to die and you're going to have a meadow, beautiful meadow, in about 10 or 15 years. The naturalists arrive at the actual burn site. We're looking at a lot of trees that are black down at the bottom and then you get about uh, 20 feet up and suddenly they're not burned. I think that's a box elder we're looking at. Burned for the first 10 feet, and then after that, it's a light bark and leaves and flowers coming out at the top. This is vivid green. The grass here has come back in a very big way. The bad news is, if I'm not supposed to pick anything in the mountain park, but I'm taking one leaf from this grass, and we're gonna look at this leaf. And if we look carefully, is there an M in there? There should be a letter or, M in it. Yeah, Pretty sure this is all smooth brome, an introduced Asiatic grass that is wonderful for cattle. But it creates what I would call, Ruth Carolyn Scott, a monoculture. Exactly. For nesting birds and even insects, right? Yeah. And these are sort of deserts in the middle of the grasslands. Yeah. Because our critters did not evolve with this grass. And many of them probably don't recognize it as food even. No. And so when you get these Eurasian grasses coming in, you get areas, when we're doing breeding bird surveys, these are the areas where we see the fewest grassland birds. Yeah, that outcompetes all our native grasses. If you're a hay farmer, you love it, but for a wildlands restoration perspective, it's really hard to control. The only way to control is to poison it with toxic chemicals. We don't want to do that anymore. So some people say, let's quote, naturalize it. Pretend it's natural. I think that's foolish. We need to know it's invasive and try to encourage the native grasses as much as we can. But it sure, sure is green here, isn't it? Steve Jones and Scott Sievers say there is another way to kill invasive grasses, at least for some invasive grasses. Sometimes these fires are hot enough, they'll kill the seed bed for some of these grasses, but smooth brome seems pretty resistant. It just comes right back. Steve Jones says the Encar fire was not a hot burning fire. He says the Marshall fire that burned over 1,000 homes, that was a different fire. The Marshall fire, the one that burned all the houses. What made it catastrophic was five 
months of very dry weather from the 1st of August through New Year's Eve. And then add that 120 mile an hour winds and add to that hot temperatures. You don't get that combination very often. I mean, you could go through the weather records and it would be hard to find that combination. And of course, climate change contributed to it because we have warmer temperatures now by about 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit, which dries out the grasses even more. But I think that we may more likely have longer periods of drought, even though we're getting more precipitation. Precipitation amount in Boulder seems to have increased over the last 50 years, maybe 5%, but there's much more drying. So the Marshall Fire, it was like our 2013 flood, which was, I think, a 500-year flood that we had down here. Things like that happen. They'll happen more often with climate change, but they were happening before climate change, too. Steve Jones says he grieves about climate change. We know there's this catastrophic change occurring on the Earth, and it's climate change. It is the next great extinction event. It's going to kill at least half of the species on Earth, we're pretty sure, and it could be worse. And we're all very sad about that. But I think we make the mistake of attributing everything that happens to climate change. Why don't we just walk up this little gully? It's just so pretty. Across the trail from the very invasive, green, smooth brome grass, with Carol spots some yellow flowers growing on a very dry hill. And Ruth Carol's looking at some cool flowers. Oh boy. Yellow evening primrose. Those are gorgeous. And they're coming out of the bare soil there. They don't like a lot of competition. And let's get down and look at them really close. They've got a lot of stamens coming out, four petals. When you're close and hold out your hand over them, the flower is about the size of the palm of your hand, and the petals are very delicate, soft material. Where they're growing is a shale slope that's 50% bare ground. There's very little grass here. And that's why we don't like these meadows. They're just covered with smooth brome grass because they don't allow niches for plants like this. These evening primroses have to have bare ground. They can't compete with other plants and too many grasses. Look all the way up this valley. It's all evening primrose. Evening primroses, I see them blooming throughout the first half of the summer. Uh, maybe not these particular plants, but others will replace them. So they should still be here in the end of June. Ah, so these I are just closing up today. They've been out all night to attract moths. They're pollinated by night flying moths, especially sphinx moths, the ones that we sometimes call hummingbird moths. And they were open, wide open at night, and we can already see they're closing up, even though it's only about seven in the morning. These will wilt away, and then they'll produce another bunch of flowers this evening. So you'll see them on bare ground up in this canyon, wherever you see flashes of yellow. You can hear lots of birds and see natural wonders such as evening primrose by going on a pre-dawn hike. Here in this week of the summer solstice, a pre-dawn hike might be at its very best if you hit the trails a little after 5 o'clock in the morning. Thanks to Shelley for that walk with Boulder Naturalists. This is How on Earth, the KDNO Science Show.
I'm your host, Beth Bennett. And I'm Shelley Schlender. This music is a clue to what Beth will talk about next. The music is from the movie Star Wars. It's called the Little People Symphony. Beth's interview is about little people, possibly real little people, possibly still alive today. For more, here's Beth Bennett. Welcome to the show, Greg. I'm speaking with Dr. Gregory Forth, who is a professor of anthropology at the University of Alberta. And he has just come out with an interesting book called Between Ape and Human. And it's the story of... Wow, I don't even know how to describe this, so I'll let you do that, Greg. But it's a story of some of his research on the Indonesian island of Flores, where some of our listeners may know that not too long ago, a novel, very small species of Homo, called Homo floresiensis, was discovered. And amazingly, Greg was working on that island well before the fossils were discovered and has some very interesting parallel findings to talk about. So here we go, Greg, you can talk about your work on the island of Flores. Well, thanks very much, Beth. Uh, Thanks uh, especially for that very clear uh, introduction. Indeed, I started working on Flores in the early 1980s, some to nearly 40 years ago now. Uh, Not long after I arrived on the island, I started to hear these stories about uh, small human-like creatures standing about uh, three meters, maybe. Um, Sorry, one meter, I should say. Right, right. (laughs) Just over three feet. Three meters would be far too tall. That would be uh, Bigfoot. Yeah. In the in the region I was working initially, these creatures were said to be extinct, to have died out, you know, several hundreds of, of years ago. However, as uh, time went by and as my uh, research uh, progressed, I um, uh, moved to the, the Leo region, uh, which is the place I, I mostly talk about in the uh, book. Uh, and people in Leo described uh, similar small, uh, very small, tiny uh, human-like beings standing on two legs and moving bipedally and so on, which they said were very rare in their region, but but nevertheless still survived. And, and a few people had uh, had seen them. I, I might also mention that my research on Flores has, has been concerned with all manner of things anthropological. So most of my research topics weren't connected with my study of these these images, uh, these stories about uh, ape men. Initially, I I was inclined to conclude, I I assumed, that these uh, creatures were mostly imaginary, if not entirely imaginary. What happened in 2004, we heard that a team of paleontologists or paleoanthropologists uh, digging in uh, Western Flores discovered the remains of, uh, as you said, a very small hominin, a member of the genus uh, Homo, whose dates were pretty recent, uh, initially uh, about 12,000 years ago. The date has since been revised, but nevertheless, these things were parallel to uh, human beings, uh, or if not on the island of Flores, then, you know, in the region, uh, in that part of uh, Indonesia, more generally. Well, 
that discovery, well, I should also say, of course, that the reconstructions by the paleoanthropologists of what Homo floresiensis, that was the uh, small hominin, looked like, uh, matched remarkably well. Description that had been given by local people in, in Leo, especially of what uh, some of them had uh, actually seen. So I, I started to think along somewhat different lines. Yeah, and the really amazing thing is how recently this so-called hobbit species, if you'll let well, me use that term, how recently they had been presumed to live on the island. When did modern humans arrive on the island for comparison? Well, that's that's uh, that that's kind of up for grabs. But I, I will say, first of all, Homo floresiensis, the remains of fourteen individuals, were all discovered. All the remains were discovered in a single cave or, or rock shelter, as a matter of fact. And we only have dates for that, so uh, we really don't know when they became extinct, or dare I say, uh, whether in fact they did become extinct, and, and that's. Uh, that's what the book is really all about. Right. And it's it's truly remarkable. I mean, I think you were cautious and discreet in the book, but I think when we're talking, we can be a little more speculative. It, it sure seemed to me that there is a good possibility, given the depth of your investigation into the mm-hmm. existence of what you call the ape men, these small creatures that have been yep. reported by the people that live on the island now, mm-hmm. and the fossil hominids, it could be that they are one in the same and there might be another hominid species still alive on the planet with us. That's just mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah at least in, uh, in Flores. I, um, I should say that a large part of the book, about two or three chapters, are, are devoted to trying to find alternative explanations and beside you know that the conclusion that um that these things may well you know be actual creatures that people are, are seeing and describing uh, with reasonable accuracies after looking at all the possible explanations I, I come to the conclusion that the one that makes both sense you know logically rationally and in terms of the evidence we have is that the people are actually seeing something and it is it is something that looks rather like homo floresiensis indeed very much like Homo floresiensis, I should say. Right, exactly. I agree. And I that's why I say that you were very careful and cautious and you developed that thesis that there's alternative explanations. I mean, you, you definitely utilize the scientific method in a way that's very unfamiliar to me in, in what I would assume is a standard cultural anthropological method of mm-hmm. getting out there and talking to people and getting all the evidence and putting it out there and comparing it. And you were extremely thorough in that regard. And so then your conclusions definitely follow from that. Mm, no, thanks for uh, that observation. Yeah. So maybe you could talk a little bit. I mean, we don't have time to go into a full description of island biology, but I think it's a great parallel track of biology to the evolution of the Homo floresiensis that, you know, when when animals in general, mammals specifically, I guess I should say, um, mm-hmm. move to islands, there's this kind of um, thing that happens to them. So maybe you could talk about that because it does illustrate this fossil um, that you've been describing as well as the potentially surviving um, what are called ape men in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, I, I should say, uh, I should answer your earlier question a bit more, and, and that is that uh, it's possible that modern humans uh, arrived on the island 50,000 years back. At the oh, same time, okay. the only um, evidence we have for modern humans uh, uh, on the island goes back 11,000 
Uh, yeah, so, you know, a lot of question marks out there. But, but what tends to happen on small islands, Beth, as you probably know, is that some creatures uh, get bigger than they are elsewhere, whereas uh, others get small owing to limited food supply and so on. The ones that get big are, uh, well, we can generally say predators, like the Flores giant rat, which is a remarkable creature. I, I have a photo of that in, in the book. which is Right. The, That's kind of scary looking. Well, it is indeed a dangerous animal uh, for reasons I won't go into uh, specifically, but uh, that's found only on, on Flores. Uh, interestingly enough. And of course, we already know that Komodo dragons survive on Flores, although they, they seem to have got quite big, uh, you know, elsewhere before their surviving uh, populations uh, uh, were found only on Flores and on neighboring islands like, uh, like Komodo, indeed, just to the east. Right. Um, I might also say that Flores Island is what they call uh, pauperate or impoverished in mammals, in fact, the only native mammals besides the ape men that we know about are rats like the giant one and bats, which of course can fly. Oh, right. And everything else, like monkeys, uh, porcupines, uh, and uh, domestic animals, were introduced by uh, humans a few hundred or a few thousand years ago. Sure, sure. So during the last ice age, in that area of Indonesia, were there land bridges similar to what existed between Asia and North America that could account for that colonization by modern humans? Great question. No, the modern humans, uh, they came, they would have come by some sort of vessel. I see. Um, th th there is, with regard to Flores specifically, there is no evidence for uh, a land bridge, you might almost say, ever which means that we don't know how Homo floresiensis got there, right, let alone, right. <laughs> let alone uh, well, <laughs> let alone the ape men, you might, uh, right, you might say. Right. Although, of course, the, the ape men and the, the uh, floresiensis are definitely linked, at least contextually. Yeah, yeah. And do you have bones, or has there been any finding of bones of what, are, what you're calling the ape men that could be compared to the fossils? Um, I don't have them, uh, or, or they, they haven't been found yet. Uh, let me just say that the chances of something fossilizing and, and then being found, of course, are, are staggeringly uh, are small. You know, a, a, a lot of things, especially in tropical uh, areas, don't uh, don't fossilize. So right, they, they're right. Just, you know, uh, they just disappear. And local people do speak of relics, what I call relics, with right. the same bones and other remains of uh, ape men, uh, which serve them uh, as uh, as magical amulets, charms, and so on, in the same way as do the bones and so on of other animals. I've seen some of those. I, I wasn't able to analyze them. Uh, and, and the ones I was able to analyze or give a pretty uh, good interpretation of what they are were, were definitely not primates. Ah, right, right. And you did also talk about potential competition between the ape men and the current modern humans, given that yeah. modern humans are farmers and they have domestic animals. And so little humans that live in the forest would probably be very likely to come and steal their food. That Well, so certainly steal from their gardens. Right. Uh, quite right. But, uh, it, it, you know, the evidence is, uh, well, for the ape, both ape men and Floresiensis, uh, was that they were largely uh, vegetarian. And mm. there's a lot of wild plant food uh, on the island, um, including way up in the highlands where the ape men are supposed to live. 
it's almost certain they would have taken advantage as well of, of various uh, invertebrate foods like slug snails, insects of various sorts, uh, insect larvae, and on and on. And, and there's a lot of that around, although there is also the notion that, that the ape men uh, do steal from uh, cornfields and, and even the odd chicken. How accurate that is, we can't fully say, of course. And I'm assuming that the highlands where they may have been forced or have chosen to to move to are relatively inaccessible to Westerners also, and that's why nobody's gone looking for them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh, there's an awful lot to say about that. I mean, the, <laughs> the Leo people, uh, the Highlanders, are pretty agile folk, and they can go to places where, you know, where it would be very difficult for a Westerner to go. Another thing, of course, is that zoologists, even field zoologists, by contrast to the kind who spend, you know, all the most of their time in, in labs, they don't usually go looking for species. Yeah, right. They busy themselves with the study, which is fine. All the animals we already know. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it's reasonable, therefore, to suppose that there are uh, species on a, a remote island like Flores that academic zoology, biology doesn't, doesn't know about yet. Right. Yeah. And I find it very intriguing and, in fact, exciting to speculate that there is another species in our genus somewhere on the planet. <laughs> well, we'll have to leave it there, Greg, but I will link to your book in our show notes and maybe some enthusiastic listener will decide to pursue this. Yeah. So thanks, thanks for talking to me today. That, that's fine. Well, thank you very much for your interest. Thanks to Beth Bennett for that report. Gregory Forth's new book is Between Ape and Human, an anthropologist on the trail of a hidden hominoid. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Shelley Schlender, and by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from local guitarist Lynn Patrick and from Star Wars, The Little People Symphony. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and hot links. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Shelley Schlender. <laughs>